Take ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This program was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Hello and welcome to Bringing Wellbeing to Life, the program that takes wellbeing research off the page and into our lives. I'm Dr. Denise Quinlan and today we're talking about wellbeing in education and what schools can do to make sure their whole school wellbeing programs include everything they should and how to check that things are working. My guest today is Professor Lee Waters from the University of Melbourne's Graduate School of Education. Lee is a global leader in the research and practice in the field of well-being in education. Her research is actually groundbreaking and has contributed significantly to positive education, positive organizations, and really, I think, Lee, we can say you have single-handedly developed the area of strength-based parenting. In the last two years, Lee has been president of the International Positive Psychology Association. And more recently, Lee's been involved in a multi-year project to develop a new framework for positive education. It's one that's designed to help educators organize and evaluate the well-being interventions they're doing. We believe it's a really important tool that is going to help schools enormously. And I'm really excited to talk to Lee about it. So, kia ora, Lee. We're delighted to have you with us. Welcome to Bringing Wellbeing to Life. Kia ora, Denise. Lovely to have you with us. So, Lee, you have been working with schools and doing positive education for the past decade. What stands out for you about what's best about what's happening? And what have been some of your concerns? What stands out, I think, if I think back to sort of a decade ago in my, my conversations with schools, with school systems, with education ministers, uh, you know, with university vice chancellors, was just a real lack of understanding for the need for this kind of approach, um, a lack of understanding of the fact of the science behind the approach. And so in that way, a bit of a dismissal. Um, you know, particularly when you talk about the phraseology of positive education, and so it often be met with, oh, well, what are we doing now? Is it negative education? And so it was quite a kind of flippant approach to this need. What is so pleasing now, a decade later, is to see just the momentum um, that the, the movement of positive education has gained across the world, mm-hmm. um, in, in both your country, New Zealand, in my country, Australia, um, but globally, it's really, it's really a global movement now. And... You know, it's starting with the, the highest levels of kind of uh, inter-country organisations, World Health Organisation, World Bank, United Nations, UNESCO, the Organisation for Economic Cooperative Development. You know, all of these major kind of thought leaders across the globe are all saying that we need to reimagine schools and that schools need to be what I call dual-purpose institutions, meaning that their purpose is to um, develop a young person academically um, but equally to develop that young person's sense of self, their mental health trajectory, their ability to be you know, a good child, a good teenager, and, and grow up to be not just a productive member of society, but a positive member of society, yeah. someone who contributes moral value, not just economic value. And so that, I think, is one of the, the best things that, that's happened is just this very... Um, strong endorsement and then what sits underneath that and one of the things that I would be you know that I would say I would answer your question to 
you know, what's been really surprising and what's been really great about the field is just the buy-in. Yeah. You know, you speak to teachers, you speak to parents, but most importantly to the students themselves. And they say, we need this, we want this, we're prepared to put in the time and the energy to learn about it. Um, it's always so inspiring when you see student voice. I was at a school yesterday that I'm working with here in Australia and um, students have gone to the school principal and said, we would like to have a wellbeing captain. So we have our student leadership, we have our sports captain and um, we have our house captains and we have our school leader. You know, why not have a leadership position that's dedicated to wellbeing? Because we see this as a really important part of what students can do for each other. And so that, you know, isn't it amazing? Yeah. So the students are voting with their feet. So they'd be the things that I'd say. I mean, there's a lot more I could say in terms of what are the best things that are happening, but it's the legitimizing of it. It's the, um, yeah, the legitimizing of it from the big bodies, the buy-in on the ground. And then probably the third component to that is just the build-up of the scientific evidence around it. And, you know, Mm -hmm. the number of uh, academics like myself, um, psychology researchers like myself and educational researchers who really are committed to building this as a scientific field. Mm. So they'd be the pleasant things. Um, (laughs) Second part of your question. Yeah, the stuff that's maybe, the stuff that we're still working on. Mm -hmm. Mm. Um, Okay, how long have we got? (laughs) Uh, The post-it note version. Post-it note, all right, three dot points. I think it's like any new newish movement. I mean, it's not, it's not that it's new, honestly. We've had social and emotional yeah. learning around for three decades. We've had resilience education for two decades. Mindfulness and positive education are both now a decade old. Yeah. Um, but it's still seen as a new field. And so there still is, I think, there's some cynicism. Um, it's less than when I first started in this field, absolutely less. Uh, it still always takes my breath away when you see uh, people in the field who are, I think, here ultimately to develop and care for young people who say that's not my job. I think I always find that very disheartening. Um, I've learned to not react to that. And for anyone out there who's listening to this who maybe is trying to be the ambassador and bring this kind of approach into their school, um, don't be disheartened when you're met with that cynicism. I think I was initially quite disheartened. And I've learned over time to stop and pause and I guess just be curious about what sits underneath that Mm -hmm. cynicism and try and engage that way. So often what sits under the cynicism in education is change fatigue. Teachers are, there's always the latest this and the latest that and just just to be able to listen to them and work your way through the fact that wellbeing is never going to go away. It's not a fad. You know, mental health is here to stay, whether it's mental ill health or whether it's mental health. It's, it's yeah. not something that goes away. It's not like a new technology or, uh, you know, the latest kind of pedagogy or particular curriculum. You know, this is a state of being that everyone has in, for their whole life. So to be able to talk to them about that, to be able to, if the cynicism is coming from change fatigue, also to recognise and honour that it is easy to get fatigued in the field of education. So um, I know you're a big believer of this too, Denise, you and Lucy, but work first with the adults in the school and help to replenish them and restore them and show them how the science and the practice of positive psychology and positive education, so learning the techniques of mindfulness, learning how to savour, being re-energised through um, utilising your strengths, Mm. learning how to, uh, you know, learning the catastrophe scale and how to reframe, learning how to better prepare yourself 
for the moments of the academic calendar that are stressful. So when you replenish and restore the adults, they're able to replenish and restore and build the young people in the school. So that's how I've learned to engage with mm -hmm. the cynicism. The other, the third part I'll say about that is, have you ever heard of the expression, don't water the rocks? Yeah. <laughs> um, I think I heard the Irish equivalent, which is there's no point fishing in a dry ditch. Yeah, okay, yes, I love it. <laughs> yeah. You know, so firstly, you know, have empathy, take it seriously, engage. Um, some people you, you, you can connect with and bring them along on the journey. Some people you just can't. And so I've learned just through my own experience, I used to be such a, such a, maybe a zealot, you know, like, because I'm a scientist, because I'm a psychologist, I'm like, how, he's the science, you know, it's so compelling. How could you not? Yeah, weather, yeah. Yeah, come yeah. on. There's a moral obligation here. And, and now I've just learned that, you know, um, in schools, you don't have to have everyone on board. If you've yeah. got the majority of people on board and each of those people do one or two new practices in their classroom, mm. that's having a spill-on benefit to boosting the well-being of a young person. And not every teacher has to be involved in this. Mm. And it's a, it's a, it's an irony to kind of force someone to be positive. You, you, you yes. can't and you shouldn't do that. So the people who ultimately want to stay cynical uh, and don't want to come on board, I, you know, Live and let live yeah, is what yeah, I say. Yeah, so you, yeah. you put your energy and your attention into those ambassadors, the thought leaders, the early adopters within the school. So that to me I think is the biggest challenge. Um, I, I guess another challenge is, and again it's shifting from my experience over the last 10 years, is just the uh, public education mm. really around what it is, what yeah. it does, and helping people to change their language and their mindset. And none think, of them are, none of them, sorry, just to finish that little yeah. thought loop, none of them are insurmountable. None of those yeah. challenges are yeah. insignificant. And I guess the other side we sometimes see is that, you know, like, yep, yeah, on one side we've got the cynicism and persuading people to get on board. Sure. And then one of the, uh, on the flip side of that, there is this mass of people trying to rush into what they perceive as this lucrative market with a thousand good ideas for Monday. And I've got a program and I've packaged it. Yeah. And so it's kind of this wall of stuff coming at schools. Um, who who know who then who, who have come on board and go we do have a moral obligation to support well-being oh my word what do we do um, yeah that's such a good point that that's a it's very easy i've seen on the inside from schools for them to feel very overwhelmed by the yeah. number of products and yeah. programs um, and consultants who are out there and so the work um you know the, the most sensible thing to do there is to Give it some time, be thoughtful, be strategic, build it into your next strategic planning process. And if that's not for another couple of years, then in, in the beginning, at least align it with what are the strategic goals and intents of the school and what is the vision and mission of that school. Because you've got to have some anchor points to help you make decisions about where you invest in, where you invest your money, because these things cost money, where you invest your time for staff PD um, and to sort of do your due diligence around does this program align with what our school vision and missions are mm -hmm. about? If we're collecting data, and that's a big one I think I would mm -hmm. you know, always encourage schools to, we collect a lot of data around learning and learning outcomes, should also be collecting data around the mental health of our students because, um, you know, if you treasure it, you should measure it. Mm -hmm. And because then you can be data-driven with your decisions. So, you know, I, uh, the work that I do with schools, we always collect data. And so we can see, okay, ninth grade, students are struggling a little bit in ninth grade and we need to put a little bit of extra effort 
into that year level or, you know, girls are presenting with slightly different problems to the boys. Um, junior school yeah. students have uh, different needs to the senior school students and mm-hmm. the only way you can know that and address that is through data. So once you have mm-hmm. that data, you can be more informed in terms of mm-hmm. that feeling of overwhelm of all the different products, programs mm-hmm. out there. And then finally, just do your due diligence about the person. How long has this person been in the field? What are their qualifications? Um, you know, beware of things that are a bit too... Beware of people glitzy. selling snake oil. Beware of snake oil. Beware of things that are glitzy. And certainly beware of things that are a cure-all. Yeah, yeah. Um, one size fits all kind of approach. Beware of that. Lee, this is why I think I was so excited when I saw your search framework because we know schools get overwhelmed. We know they need to have, um, what we're seeing is two, two sides to this. One is people need pedagogies and processes they can use that are reliable, but they also need decent frameworks to help them evaluate and avoid the overwhelm. So tell us a bit about the search framework, um, what it is and how you came to develop it. Thank you. Thank you for asking. It's a bit, as you know, it's a it's one of my big pet projects at the university. So, um, the the impetus behind the search framework was doing a lot of work with schools, seeing schools that are well intentioned, um, and uh, but kind of falling down in their efforts. So, spending money on training, bringing in programs, having the kind of moral buy in, and then a couple of years later. It just it hasn't reached the potential and it starts to fizzle. And what happens with a lot of schools, uh, and this is just a normal part of the evolution, is that um, there ends up being pockets of practice across the school. So you've sent one teacher out to do work on mindsets and another teacher's gone out and done some stuff on mindfulness. And then you've got one teacher who's, you know, big into Angela Duckworth stuff on grit and... So Someone else has done strands. So, yeah, 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 exactly. And you've got kind of gratitude over here and grit over here and then you've got savouring down here and you've got strengths up here and then you've got mindset over here and then you've got mindfulness. And what happens is it, they become disjointed pockets of practice across the school. And so the students themselves aren't able to join the dots that these are all part of a cohesive mm-hmm. approach. And it's giving the student a toolkit so that the student can say, today, you know, I've got an exam tomorrow, I'm feeling under a lot of pressure. What do I draw from my toolkit? Well, you know, I really need to draw on mindfulness today, do a lot of breathing, calm down my uh, physiology so that I can think clearly for the exam tomorrow. Um, Next week, you know, we're heading into school sports day and so what I'm going to draw from my toolkit is my strength and my gratitude and my savouring. So what happens with these pockets of practice is you don't get the full benefit. The student isn't understanding that it's all part of one toolkit. So you're not really boosting their mental health. But equally, what happens is that you're not really having an impact on the well-being of the staff and the faculty in schools because they're not, they're not all connected with the same language and the same understanding of mental health. And so either positive education kind of dies or it limps along, but it doesn't reach its full potential. And just from a pure, like, return on investment, you're not getting the return on investment from an, you know, if I put myself, I, my PhD was in organisational psychology, so if I put myself in the role as the leader, leadership team, who have said this is what we're going to do and we're putting some money into this and we're sending staff out to be trained in this and we're purchasing these particular curriculums. Um, it, I'm trying to think of the equivalent, but it would sort of be like if you were trying to teach a student maths and, you know, they're learning one kind of approach over here 
and then a different approach somewhere else and then a third approach somewhere else from different teachers mm. at different year levels across the school. So they don't come out with that kind of cohesive, yeah. um, connected understanding of like mathematical principles and how to apply them. And we just, we wouldn't do that um, if it was academic learning, but we tend to do that with wellbeing. Yeah. And so that was the kind of impetus, these frust two frustrations. One was we weren't getting this um, consistent, intentional, uh, cohesive approach for a student across mm -hmm. their schooling years so that they come out genuinely having learned about their own well-being and with the well-being and the second is it's not having an impact on the well-being of staff and as we talked earlier if we can't replenish staff the adults in the school Absolutely. the waterfall effect you know, mm -hmm. the waterfall is the water is not sort of clear and clean coming down from the adults to the young people then it's very difficult for us then you have this sort of hypocritical scenario where yeah. you're teaching students about well-being. But you're um, not modelling it or living it or, or, or supporting their well-being and having constructive, positive interactions and relationships. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly right. And, you know, kids learn way more from modelling than from kind of formal lesson plans. We all do, actually. You yeah. know, we all learn way more from modelling than formal lesson plans. And being able to see... Uh, positive education in those learning moments. And that could be, as you say, the teacher um, being, you know, upbeat, playing to their strengths, using a moment of mm -hmm. gratitude or savouring, <clears throat> excuse me. But it could also be the teacher in that moment of stress, being able to model that to the students and say, you know what, I've had a stressful morning so far, I didn't eat lunch, can we all just take a pause and do a two-minute mindfulness session so I can get my brain and energy levels ready to teach you geography nice. so in that mm. moment so they were the two kind of um i guess disappointments that i was having i was seeing a lot of schools come in spend money have the right intention and then not get the outcomes they wanted and so i guess going back to my days in organizational psychology and looking at well um how do corporations create sustained cultural change and they do that, um, as you said, through kind of the process, putting, putting in certain processes. They do it through their school, oh, sorry, their organisational strategic vision and mission. But they also do it through a framework. They have a yeah. framework. And so in terms of mental health, they'll have things like the EAP, so the Employee Assistance Programs. You, you know, you go to a lot, lot of those large firms and they have their own kind of mental health framework, the mm -hmm. five pathways to you, or, you know, this is what mental health looks like to us at XX company. And so that just got me thinking about frameworks and, and the benefit of a framework for a school and, um, you know, the benefit, as you said earlier, with the framework is that we can start to organise what we're already doing. So mm -hmm. we can start to organise that we've got mindset in year nine and we've got mindfulness in year seven and we've got strengths in year 11. We can start to bring them all together. So we can organise, we can decide upon what particular initiatives are needed for our students and then we can evaluate. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of the need for the framework search itself. I mean, I started looking around. There are a number of frameworks out there. And um, I, being, being the scientist that I am, I really, really wanted to make sure that we had a science, a kind of data-informed framework. And so the, the initial part of this framework was actually with my PhD student or past PhD student, uh, Dr. Ruben Rusk, and we did a very large bibliometric analysis of the field. Of the field of positive psychology, we had 18,403 psychology peer-reviewed papers. 
that were gathered from 700 psychology and education journals over an 18-year time period. So we're talking like really like huge, mm. huge mm. data sets, just huge, uh, overwhelming in fact. And thankfully one of Ruben's strengths is that prior to him coming to do his PhD with me, he was an engineer. So he's You've very... got a love for engineers who come to <laughs> education and psychology. Yeah, such a change. Um, so he's very gifted mathematically. So he, we, we were able to get this large data set and engage in a range of different uh, technologies and, and statistical techniques to have a look at um, across that large data set, are there some consistent findings that psychologists are telling us contribute to wellbeing? So what we found in that large, really big, large uh, data set, bibliometric data set, was that there were five key factors that came out. We At the time, we called them the five domains of positive functioning. And the first domain, the first pathway was virtues and relationships. Second one was emotional management. The third one was attention and awareness. The fourth one was coping. And the fifth one was habits and goals. Forget about the research for a moment. If you're, if you're sitting here listening to this podcast and you just think about it intuitively, what the research is telling us is if you play to your strengths and you, you know, you be a good person and live a virtuous life, this is, this is a a part, what I'm calling a pathway, initially we called that a, posit, a domain of positive functioning yeah. that contributes to well-being. If you learn the skill set to better manage your emotions, better um, understand why you get angry, why you get frustrated, why you get stressed, not ignore those things, actually lean into them, understand their purpose and manage them, um, and at the same time better understand the purpose of joy, happiness, wonder, and find ways of amplifying those emotions, then you're, you're going to have higher levels of well-being. Uh, the more you can pay attention and have awareness, inner awareness, outer awareness, being able to have like a dedicated focus rather than being um, our attention being scattered here, there and everywhere, that's a recipe. That's a pathway yeah. to well-being. Relationships, we all know the importance of. And then the final one um, was habits and goals. I have to say that this one had a big impact on me personally uh, because I – I could kind of look at the others and say, yeah, you know, I'm a qualified psychologist. I've done a lot of my own. I've had my own healing and therapeutic journey. I've done a lot of work. I do a lot of mindfulness in my own practices. I've got good relationships um, in my adult life. But I could probably boost up my habits because that was like this whole fifth pathway that I wasn't really working on personally. And I felt like yeah. this is like this available opportunity to me to keep building up my well-being that I'm not taking. So that's how it started. It started with this large bibliometric analysis, these five pathways. Then the next step in the research, and this is the thing about research, it, it is, and any good research should be this stepwise process. So um, I published the search framework earlier this year, as you know, but it's been like, you know, six years in the making yeah. of, of good, dedicated, solid, long research published. So the next step then was to take those five pathways out to schools. And I took those pathways, five pathways out to eight schools. I did an action research project, um, sorry, 10 schools, and asked schools, this is what the research is telling us. What does this look like on the ground? Does this make sense to you as a school? Would this be a good framework if you started to organise what you're currently doing around these five pathways? You know, what are you currently doing that's helping the students and the staff to know and play to their strengths? What are you currently doing to help the staff and students learn about skill, the skills of emotional management? What are you doing to cultivate good relationships across the school, et cetera? Um, that was an amazing process, that action research. And what came back was they really liked the five pathways. 
but they wanted some slight tweaks. Um, they suggested that first pathway, which was where we had combined strengths and virtues. The, the teacher said, can you separate those out? Because um, we want to be out, they're both important. And if they, if they come together, um, strength, oh, strengths and relationships actually that were together. If, they, if we have them together, it's going to kind of muddy the water. Yeah, yeah. So could you pull those out? So we did. So we separated out strengths and we had a very like distinct pathway on strengths and we had a distinct pathway on relationships. Um, the students themselves told us we don't like the word virtues. It's, it's judgmental. Um, it's old school. The students that I worked with um, across those 10 schools, I had, you know, a, a range of schools from kind of state public government schools and then we had independent schools, private schools. We had um, Catholic schools. The students from the state public schools said it sounds like a very religious term. We wouldn't relate to it, you know, if that was part of the framework and, and the... Yeah, you're losing just, us. Yeah. yeah. So we got rid of that. We got rid of the word virtues. We just had strengths. Let's just call it strengths, you know, and strengths are defined as um, qualities that you're good at, that energize you and that do good for other people. So you don't have to sort of talk about virtue. So we road tested that and it went from five domains of positive functioning to the six pathways of well-being. And we changed some of the language and the terminology. And when you do that and you separate those things out, then you get these six pathways. The first one is strengths. Second one is emotional management. Third one is attention. Fourth one is relationships. Fifth one is coping, and the sixth one is habits and goals. And when you put those together as an acronym, it turns out to form the word search, which I uh, give credit to one of my master students for because I was sitting in my office and I, you know, I had all the pieces of paper out and I was looking at the anagram <laughs> territory. Mm. Yeah. And um, Claire Fortune, who's one of my master students from the Masters of Applied Positive Psychology, who actually works for me now. Uh, she was like, you know, if you put those together in this particular way, it spells search. Nice. And it was so clever. And it, what I love about it is that, that it's very poetic. It's like you take this really, really full-on, like, algorithms in a data set of 18,400, like, really, really deep statistical science, and then it turns out to be this very poetic search. acronym. Yeah. yeah, I love it. And it, I think search is important because mm. it, it also helps us to send a message to young people that you do have to search for your own mm. well-being. Mm -hmm. You can't take it for granted. It doesn't come easily. Um, if you want to improve your mental fitness, it's the same as physical fitness. You have to work, at, work it. at it. You have to exercise. You have to watch what you eat. You know, mm -hmm. don't have a sort of psychological diet of junk food. Don't listen to the bullies. Don't go onto the in internet and think, well, I have to look perfect. Now, don't feed yourself psychological mm -hmm. junk food. You have to search for your well-being. You have to be proactive. You have mm -hmm. to work on it. And so I, so I love the fact that it came down to this acronym mm. called SEARCH because it's a very useful framework for schools. And um, I'm calling it a better framework because it's that big picture. So schools can sit down and have a look at what are we already doing, what happens when you do the search audit with schools, and by the way, schools can do this themselves. They can, they can go yeah, to my website. They can download the search framework. They can have a look at um, what are we already doing. And what happens is that a lot of schools have invested in programs, and it turns out that the bulk of those programs are in one or two pathways. 
So there's a lot of programs out there on coping, you know, as well. There the resilience be, piece, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Students are struggling and we need those programs on coping, but it turns out that when the schools look at it from a search perspective and they understand that the science tells us we, ha we have to actually be cultivating six pathways, mm. and then they say, well, we've got four programs and three of them are around coping. Um, and maybe one of them is around strengths, but we've got nothing on habits and goals, we've got nothing on relationships, we've got nothing on attention and awareness, we've got very little yeah. on emotional management. So then they realise, oh, <laughs> okay. There's a whole if, world out there. Mm, yeah. If I'm going yeah. to invest in four programs, try mm. and spread them across the pathway. So it makes their investments uh, mm. wiser. If schools are starting from the first place, you know, they get the green field so they can have a look at. It also allows schools to say, what are we doing that's not um, maybe labelled as positive education it's not a program but it's something that we just do in the school you know, it's we a do good schools. habit oh look we've got yes. these great habits that we've exactly. been building for the last decade that are part of our school culture yeah spot on and you know we've yeah. got we've got all of these things that cultivate relationships yeah. so we're already doing that and it turns out that you know we are building strengths in certain areas in certain subjects so um search is a very strength-based approach you, you start mm -hmm. with what you're already doing and what it does is it takes these things that are already happening that are a little bit invisible or maybe haven't been framed as posed. And then it's like you put a different lens across yeah. the school and you say, wow, we're, we're actually ahead of the game here. We're already doing, we're doing quite a lot. A lot. Mm. Yeah. And that's one of the other things that, again, was a poetic outcome of science, if you like, which is that um, when you look at those six pathways, and these are pathways that myself as a psychologist is interested in looking at how do you build mental health. But if you look at them as a teacher's perspective, these things also cultivate learning. You, know, you have to have emotional management because you're in that moment of, I'm just about to do, I've, the teacher's asked me to do something and it's stretching me. And I don't have the skill set for it. And you know, I have to lean in and understand that I'm feeling a bit nervous or I'm feeling a bit angry or I'm feeling a bit overwhelmed. And I have to lean into that emotion in that moment and, and ask for help or push ahead. You have to have emotional management. I mean, learning by default is a process where you're always you're always in a state of unknown and you're hoping to get to a state of the known. So it's a process of uncertainty. It's built into the learning process. So we have to learn to manage our emotions. You have to have attention and awareness to be a good learner. And, you know, speaking to a lot of teachers mm -hmm. in schools, and that's their lament these days is that um, because of technology, you know, students can't focus for very long. So we have to build up that. Yeah. It's a pathway to mental health, but it's also a pathway to good learning. As you mentioned before, mm -hmm. habits and goals, they're a pathway to good learning. I personally believe all learning is relational yeah. um, and you learn through your relation. You learn about content, but you learn through your relationships. relationships. With teachers, yeah. if you've got a good emotional climate and you feel safe in the classroom, you like your peers, you'll learn more effectively. So you can go through each of those six pathways that, that um, the research tells us contribute to mental health. But I think it, it, if a school says, I'm going to use search as my overarching framework to organise, decide on and evaluate my wellbeing approach, they're also directly supporting the learning of the young person. That's so lovely. And I love, you've got to love a nice framework. Oh, you I do, love, don't you? you know, a framework, but a framework that you can use as an individual to guide your own well-being journey um, and development, but also that a whole school can use. That's really powerful. Yes, um, and that's, that's, sorry, Denise, that's such an important point that you raised because the, the beauty of this framework, when we did the analysis, so those 18,400 um, published articles they weren't all just at the individual level you know mm. some of them were at a group level a team level sports team nice. classroom organizational level and so again the the reason why i call this a meta framework is you can apply search to your own life 
and I and I often do my own search audit. You know, where am I sitting right now? I need to bump up my well habits and goals, or I haven't spent much time with my friends lately, so I really need to like invest a little bit of time in my relationships, or you know, my emotion. I'm not coping so well with my emotions right now, so I need to really focus on. So you can do it as an individual. You can do it at a classroom level. You can do it in a sports team, and then you can do it as a whole school. It's so good. I'm so excited about it because we've been working with so many schools where. Um, what kind of happens is they say, we're going to do whole school well-being, and then they, if, if you're going to buy an expensive curriculum, there's quite a robust process a school will go through to think about it. Mm. But actually, in terms of the implicit curriculum, in terms of all the ways you're going to embed this into your school, there is no framework or process. And and it's sort of, in some cases, well, send a couple of teachers off into a darkened room to make some decisions. And it's a bit like electing a pope. We love white smoke when you're ready, thanks. And, you know, people need better than hit and miss to be able mm. to make those important decisions. Yeah, I agree. And the teachers who are charged with going out and saying, let's, let's decide on some programs and some approaches, um, yeah, I mean, they're the well-meaning teachers. Yes. Some of them have been trained, some of them haven't. But yeah, the number of times that they've said to me, I feel like it's the blind leading the blind, like I'm doing the best I can, but I don't really know what I should be looking yeah. for. So I think any kind of framework helps them to make those decisions. Yeah. You know, Obviously, what I love about the search is that um, I, I'm personally emotionally invested in it because it's been a long journey, but it's, a, it's such a deeply data-driven framework. Yeah. And so again, you know, consumer beware. There are lots of frameworks out there and they make up a nice little acronym um, and maybe they can kind of say it's evidence-based because there's a bit of evidence about yeah. this pathway over here and this pathway over there. But um, mm. evidence-based is different to data-driven and so that would be one of the things that I would say to mm. anyone who's listening. So um, search has had a long pathway to get to where we've got to and then, you know, the, the kind of icing on the cake after we did the um, or after I did the action research study and found out you know these six pathways and then I had my my beautiful master student say oh that firm that forms the acronym search and then um, we've now worked with over 80 schools with the search framework across five countries so we're really seeing that it it's got um, it's got the consistency to allow schools but it, but because it's a meta framework it's not prescriptive yeah. so what so what uh, you know my school in Dubai chooses to do around attention and awareness, is quite different to my mm. school in Hong Kong, is quite different to my school in Australia. And what my like deeply Christian school in Australia chooses to do around attention and awareness is quite different to my state school in Australia. Absolutely. So, you know, um, it, 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 but it still means that you're building the underlying capacity. You're building the underlying capacity or that pathway of attention and awareness that we know science deeply tells us contributes to our well-being but you're able to do it in flexible ways and so the icing on the cake then was to and this was a paper that was published recently um, with one of my ex-postdoc students Dan Lawton and uh, so we went back and we evaluated 20 years of educational research to have a look at each of those six pathways and what are the programs and practices that are already in place around those six pathways that have been evaluated and tested in schools and to be able to see okay well this is what the this is what the meta framework says this is what the data is telling us but can we go back retrospectively and have a look to see does it work in school 
and it does. So we did a very a large scale review paper, 75 different programs that are in schools that map onto those search frameworks, 75,000 or 79,000 students involved across all of those studies, across 14 different countries. And what that came out showed us is yes, these pathways are happening, they're happening in schools and they're having three major outcomes. They're boosting the mental health of students, they're boosting the academic performance of students and they are actually cultivating what they're supposed to cultivate. So if you have a strengths program, it is actually boosting the strengths awareness and strengths use of those students, which you would know from your own research. Yeah. With these two delicious byproducts of academic achievement mm -hmm. and mental health and well-being. Yes, beautiful. Yeah. And I love, the, I love the idea of them being byproducts. I, I do have to say, you know, in all good consciousness as the researcher, that there was less evidence out there for the academic byproducts. And, and I want to nuance that. It's not that there was, it's not that the evidence showed it didn't improve academics. It's just that uh, for some reason over the last 20 years, it's been less of a research question. So there's yeah. a lot of, there's a lot of researchers like me who say, if we do this, does it boost mental health? But they haven't thought to ask that second question. Yeah. Oh, and does it improve learning? So it's a newer research question, which means there was less evidence for it um, just because it hadn't been asked as yeah. much. But when it had been asked, the, the evidence was confirming. Nice, nice. Yeah, yeah. so this kind of three-step process of like the big bibliometric analysis the action research and then the huge kind of synthesis of the educational literature to get us to this point of um, this search framework that and now you know it's just it's out there and it's like I said it's being used and road tested by all of these schools and it's I, I, I just want to say a big thank you actually for developing this framework because <laughs> it is welcome. so significant and important you know that we have tools that are going to help schools you know and it's really it's the teacher who's charged with developing the plan mm -hmm. and I think what we're seeing now increasingly is where this is working well in schools we've got schools that are using good frameworks and pedagogies that they're saying right we always do design thinking or we're a universal design for learning school so that's the that's the process we're going to use yeah. and now we can bring in the search meta framework to check that we're covering the domains we need to and I think that's really powerful I do too it's a, it's that you know it's the whole when you have a weft and a weave in yeah. fabric it makes the fabric stronger and so I think if you have the process so design thinking um, for example, inquiry, yeah, yeah in, inquiry-based, action research-based, formative thinking, like the, the processes that schools use. And then what search does is it gives them this content-based yeah. framework. And yeah. so that one's the weft and one's the weave and you bring them together and you get this, this niche that is, you know, hard to tear. It's very strong. Absolutely. And I don't for know any, if that's the right metaphor, but so <laughs> that's what popped into my mind. For people listening, um, Lee and I are actually on a video connection and we both have our hands going in the air <laughs> we're, doing we're wet and We're connecting our fingers together and yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. Um, Lee, I think this is going to be something that we're going to be using in schools for a long time and I'm very excited about what it can do to move things forward. Um, so a couple of final questions for you. Um, tell me. If you could only do one thing for the rest of your life to support well-being in other people, what would it be? It's so hard to choose. I know. Oh, goodness. <laughs> my brain's going, which, 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 which one? Behind closed door A, behind closed door B. I mean, I, well, mm. okay. 
I'm going to say strengths. I'm going to say connecting people mm. with their strengths. That's been, um, as you know, that's one of my research areas. That's the, and particularly with the strength-based parenting work that I do and, and my book, that's been where I've seen such transformation occur in young people, in parents, in adults, in families, in schools. And um, the, the reason why I say strengths is because they're very transformative. They change people's self-definition and therefore they change people's trajectory. But you don't have to invent them or create them. They're already there. Mm-hmm. Everyone has mm-hmm. their own inherent strengths potential and everyone, you know, some people are naturally funny and some people are naturally curious and some people are particularly, you know, they're very articulate. Some people are whiz kids with maths and algorithms. Some kids can, like, pick up a tennis racket and just, play tennis like they've been playing for years. Everyone has their own unique constellation of strengths. And so you're working with something that's already there. Mm. You don't have to invent the wheel. And for that reason and for the fact that when you connect people with their strengths, it transforms them, um, I would say strengths. My, that would be my one thing. Yeah. I want to I add so many more to that, I but know. I'll just stick with that. But I love it because I, one of the things I love about strengths is that it – it reminds people that they are fundamentally and inherently good and yes. value. It's yeah. Lovely. lovely. Mm. It's very affirming. And how about you? For you, what's your go-to strategy for boosting your own well-being when you find yourself feeling a bit frustrated or down? I am a big mindfulness fan. Um, I got introduced to mindfulness when I was 15 uh, and I was in a swim squad and we must have just had a very progressive coach because um, he brought in a yoga instructor and so for about eight weeks on a Thursday night after swim squad we would stay in the club rooms and we had this yoga instructor who taught us it wasn't called mindfulness back then but she taught us kind of some basic breathing and meditation techniques you know Denise and I've talked publicly about sort of being raised in an abusive home and dealing with a lot of psychological and domestic violence and so I'd they just were like a lifesaver for me yeah, to know that yeah. um, I can, I can, whatever is happening on the outside, I can retreat to the inside. I can breathe. I can reset my physiology. I can calm my mind. And so they've stayed with, with me for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Still to this day, you know. So I'm 48 now, and I got introduced to those concepts when I was 15, and then 17 through two sort of influential adults in my life, and. Um, they're always my go-to. You know, I've done a lot of yoga. I've done a lot of mindfulness retreats, um, various mindfulness courses, but mindfulness in the moment for me and just knowing, okay, control the controllables, take a few deep breaths, reset my physiology, listen to the internal negative radio station that's telling me, you know, you're going to fail, you're not good enough, blah, 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 and just not attach to those thoughts. Just let them pass. Yeah. Let them but that whole like mantra of, you know, you're not good enough, just let it kind of swim through my frontal lobe and go out through the other ear and <sighs> I'm still here, I yeah. still exist and keep Lovely. going. And so in the moment and, and knowing that if I'm coming into times, busy times and challenging times, setting that, setting that up as an actual practice and it is a practice, you know. <laughs> you yes, have to actually, yes. I have to actually say, right, I'm getting up early and I'm getting on the mat. And I don't do it all the time. I'm not. I'm not a perfect yeah. mindfulness. Yeah. Some da- sometimes I do it. Sometimes I think, screw it. I'm going to sleep for longer. <laughs> um, 
but I can tell the difference where, when I yeah. when I go through phases where it is a regular practice yeah. and I'm doing it I have this beautiful buffer it's just great to get to share your fabulous work with more of our listeners and we really I'm say again thank you for the work you're doing and for sharing it with us Denise it's been so great to connect with you and thank you to you for the work that you do you've been listening to bringing well-being to life on ORFM Dunedin if you'd like to learn more, our book, The Educator's Guide to Whole School Wellbeing, is available from nziwr.co.nz from early 2020. You can also listen to a podcast of this show on oar.org.nz, on nziwr.co.nz, and you can also subscribe to Apple Podcasts. I'm Dr. Denise Quinlan. Thank you for listening. To learn more about the latest research and practice in school well-being, join us at the Wellbeing in Education Conference in Christchurch from the 2nd to the 4th of April and Auckland from the 6th to the 7th of April 2020. For more information, go to nziwr.co.nz or conference.co.nz forward slash wenz20. Take ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This program was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air.